Because you know it's all about that drought, about that drought, no water. It's all about that drought, about that drought, no water. It's all about that drought, about that drought, no water. It's all about that drought, about that drought, 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 drought. Yeah, it's pretty clear, we're really short on blue. It's time to save it, save it, like we're supposed to do. Some say it's doom, gloom, and all our grass must go. But together we can make it and enjoy our golden state. It's all about that drought, about that drought, no water. It's well, all good about afternoon, that Southern drought, California and across the no world, water. from the mountains to it's the deserts to the oceans drought, to all across drought, America and no back down water. to beautiful it's San Bernardino County. Drought, Hope everybody's drought, having a great day today. I'm your host, Rob Starr, along with the next host, Mike Barron. All right. So, hey, it's great to be here. It's a very special almost day, right. almost a special month. I think we've got uh, some very important information for our listeners. Yes, we do. And we just remind everybody about the contest for July Smart Irrigation Month. Uh, we gave you three riddles, and we want you to go to the website, our website, and put in the answers. You have a chance to win four tickets to see the... Wonderful Angels. California Angels and Anaheim Los Angeles Stadium. Angels oh, of yes, Anaheim. Yes. we got to do the professional name. That's right. And they get a gift certificate for dinner for four, so that should be a pretty good thing. And if they can't take four people, Mike and I will be glad to go with you. Uh, we'll do that. So the three riddles real quick because we got a jam-packed show tonight. Uh, so the first one is, what is one thing that all wise men, regardless of their politics or religion, agree is between heaven and earth? That's riddle number one. Riddle number two, walk on the living, they don't even mumble. Walk on the dead, they mutter and grumble. What are they? And the last one is, you heard me before, yet you hear me again. Then I die till you call me again. And those are the three riddles, the ones who go into our website, which is www.torowatersmart.com. Mike showing me answers. <laughs> I'm laughing. That's, yeah, that's right, Mike. You got you, you pretty much got that. Anyway, so you go to www.torowatersmart.com and go to the contact us and put in the three answers or close to it. Whoever gets the most uh, will win. If there's a tie, we'll pick a winner and we'll announce it on our anniversary show, which will be next week. And this is all in celebration for July Smart Irrigation Month, and we have somebody who can tell us a lot more about it than you and I can, Mike, because they're the ones who started it. We have a nice lady named Deborah Hamlin. She's the executive director of the Irrigation Association, and she's with us, joining us from the East Coast. So welcome, Deborah. How are you today? Hi, Rob. I'm great. How are you guys? Great. Still dry out there? Well, uh, parts of our state are supposedly going to get some rain and snow, and I heard it hailed in Colorado somewhere, wherever... Uh, uh, they have a stadium, I guess Coors Stadium or something like that. But so we're getting a little bit of crazy weather. We've been up to a, over a hundred, and now it's going to yeah. cool down. So it was hot. I was out doing distribution uniformity catch can tests this morning with one of our salespeople. It was hot. We got wet, but it was hot. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little about the IA for our listening audience, and what is this July Smart Irrigation Month? 
Sure. Well, um, it's great to talk to you on the eve of Smart Irrigation Month, which starts tomorrow. And this is an idea that started back in 2005 from a couple of our um, industry members, the folks who make irrigation products and install and design them. And they said, we have to get the word out that people are wasting water and um, we need to... uh, we need to fix that. So we declared uh, back in 2005, and we're celebrating our 11th year of using this month to remind everyone how important it is to uh, water efficiently. A- absolutely, because everywhere, every day, every drop counts. And that's our message is to be able to enjoy landscapes, but if we water efficiently, We'll be able to achieve that objective, but if not, then we're wasting a very, very valuable resource. And, of course, July is the month in which there's peak demand for water across the entire United States. So we're going to get behind this uh, awareness campaign and encourage folks to pay attention to their sprinkler systems because it's amazing how much water can be wasted when you water at 3 a.m. in the morning and you don't realize one of your sprinklers is broken off. Yes, exactly. Um, that's the worst. And we have uh, we have a website, uh, www.smartirrigationmonth.org, and that's .org. And um, we have all sorts of tips on how to check your system, what you should be looking for for upgrading or retrofitting so that you can have more efficient technologies. And these are things that aren't expensive. You can save a lot of water by just changing out the nozzle on your sprinkler head. Yep. And uh, you're right, many, many agencies, especially in California, are offering financial incentives through either rebates or by distributing these high-efficiency nozzles uh, um, for free in order to get these technologies in the ground and operating so that folks can reduce that water footprint. So what are some of, some of the things the IA is doing? What kind of contests are you running? I know you have a uh, – I'll, I'll let you tell about the uh, photo contest. Sure. Well, uh, there's a number of things that we're doing besides working with all the different states to try and to get them to promote Smart Irrigation Month. We have some social media campaigns going on. And um, if you go to that same website, uh, smartirrigationmonth.org, you can download a, download a little sign called uh, Smart Selfie. And we're encouraging people to download that sign and take pictures and then post them on our Facebook page. So I love the fact that our first sm- Smart Selfie of the month is Mike and Rob from this radio show. Thank you. Um, it's yeah. a perfect picture. It sets the stage for what we want everyone else to do. And um, we're going to go so far. Uh, we do a lot of incentives for our industry to help out, but because you guys are communicating with the world and the users of water, we're going to go ahead and give a 32-inch flat-screen TV to the person who has the most likes on the uh, selfie that they put up on our Facebook page. Oh, we're going to have to really get into Facebook and yeah. all that good stuff to get. Hey, we I could use one of those. We're planning. <laughs> we're, 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 we're planning. We're planning a second picture, but we we really don't want to win anything. We want it for to be the the listeners. We're well, doing it to save water, but no, we'll, we want your listeners to uh, to take those pictures as well. Absolutely. And, um, the it's wonderful. You know, we are as the irrigation association. We we try and get our members to try and help their customers be uh, better irrigators 
um, for whether it's their home or their business or even in agriculture. And so um, I think you guys are doing a great job at helping us get that word out. Well, thank you. We'll continue to do so. And we sure appreciate you taking time out of your evening to, uh, especially on the eve of Smart Irrigation Month and the eve of our country's birthday. And she's three birthday. hours ahead of us. I know. On I the know. East Coast. So. So we, we appreciate it. <laughs> we'll, we'll let you get some rest. I knew you just flew in today. We're back yeah. home today. So we're going to let you go. And then this week is our Ag Week. And we're going to turn the show over to those guys uh, uh, in a second. So again, thank you very much, Deborah, for coming on the show. We appreciate it very much. Take care. Thank you both. Thanks. All right. We'll see you. All right. Now we're going to turn it over to our famous MIB micro-irrigation experts, Mr. Claude Corcus and Paul McFadden of the Toro Micro-Irrigation Group. Uh, Claude and Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. Uh, thanks for having us. That was an interesting segment by uh, Deborah Hamlin. So uh, what we're learning is we're uh, sitting here on uh, waiting to, to kick our show off. So thanks. Okay. Well, it's all yours. Thank you. Um our first uh, guest tonight is uh, Jim Morris. Uh, uh, Jim, are you there? Yes, I am. Uh, welcome. Thanks for uh, carving out some time and uh, and uh, to spend with us on uh, on the uh, water zone. Uh, Jim oh, is happy the to communications do it. manager for the California Rice Commission. Uh, the Rice Commission represents uh, all the farms and mills, rice mills in the state, which. Uh, uh, equals about $5 billion a year uh, as an industry. He oversees dozens of websites and social media channels, helping to tell a story of how California rice benefits our economy, our environment, and our food supply. I'll bet you there's some of our listeners uh, out there that don't, uh, don't even realize that we grow uh, a very large portion of our rice uh, in, the, in the state of California. Uh, thanks for uh, to changing conservation practices and commissions, media and social media outreach. The, mission, the California Rice Commission has been transformed into from a negative perception being widely recognized as a vital part of our state's environmental stewardship plan. So uh, with all that said, Jim, welcome and thank you for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, so in, uh, in, in, I think it would be helpful for our listeners uh, to to uh, get a feel for uh, the rice business as a business, the industry in the state of California. Could you give us a little background to that, please? Oh, absolutely. And it's really a surprise for people to hear about that. Uh, when you think rice, you think of Asia, et cetera. And it's a crop, of course, grown around the world. It's the most consumed grain in the world as well. And California has had a stake in rice for a very long time. It was first grown in the gold rush days as subsistence for those working on the railroads, but it didn't really take root commercially until about a 100 years ago. So we've had a very uh, dynamic, changing, and growing rice industry in California for more than 100 years. 97% of the rice grown in our state is in the Sacramento Valley, north of Sacramento. It's a great climate, relatively abundant water, and also heavy clay soils that work tremendously well. So California is a world leader in rice production. It's funny. Uh, uh, my friend and colleague that's uh, joining us on the radio show, uh, Claude Corcos, is saying, if uh, for those of you who are not familiar uh, with uh, rice production, uh, if you've ever had the opportunity to fly into the Sacramento uh, airport there, uh, you've uh, seen rice in, rice in some of, some of its finest form uh, Anywhere uh, on either side of the airport, as we're as as you're uh, making the approach into Sacramento. 
Yeah, it's a great visual to see, and it, it does help uh, raise the awareness. It also is a challenge for us from time to time because when you look down, depending on the time of the year, you may see a lot of water. It's a little deceptive because those rice fields only have five inches of water in them. Wow. Yeah, that's different than we might expect. You know, you see the pictures uh, coming out of Asia with, you know, uh, somebody standing in this water. I guess it's uh, really different the way we do things in California, huh? It's changed a lot, and it's highly sophisticated, a lot of use of global positioning system technology, uh, leveling the fields fully to within one one-hundredth of an inch. I mean, it's incredibly sophisticated. When we have tours from other countries, they're simply amazed at what they see when they look at the rice fields of our valley. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting, Jim. Thanks for the background. So um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the commission itself. You know, what is your, you know, what do you do? What's your mission, your vision maybe? And, you know, and then also, you know, one of the concerns I think that people or questions that people have about rice is, you know, uh, you know, how does it maybe impact uh, wildlife in the state? Well, the Rice Commission uh, was formed about 15 years ago with the purpose of helping this industry thrive. And so we are fully funded by the family rice farmers and mills in our state. And then we're overseen by the state of California. And the areas we work in are conservation, legislative areas, regulation, and my area of public education. And conservation is a huge part of what California rice is all about. In fact, the what we call the ecosystem services, the environmental benefits from rice, uh, are the equivalent of billions of dollars a year, and it's basically we have two crops out there. We have rice, which helps feed the world, and we also grow wildlife in our fields. In about 1990, there was a shift away from burning fields after harvest to control diseases to shallow flooding of the rice fields. And lo and behold, something amazing happened. Rice fields became a haven for nearly 230 different wildlife species, and it's just something to behold when you drive north of Sacramento, especially in the fall and winter, and you see ducks and geese, even bald eagles out there. Uh, the rice fields are now a critical part of California's environment. In fact, nearly 60% of the winter diet of ducks and geese in the Central Valley comes directly from rice fields. So are, so are they eating the rice or are they eating what's left over? Uh, a little bit of everything. So there is some waste grain, uh, some spent grain that isn't picked up from the harvest, but there's also a lot of invertebrates, crayfish, things of that nature. It's basically a, a full-on buffet for the birds. They love it. <laughs> a clam bake. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> huh. So uh, so that's maybe a different picture of rice than, uh, than, than I had. I guess I didn't realize that it was, uh, you know, that it serves uh, both the environment and, of course, helps, uh, helps feed our economy. Um, you know, uh, the, the vision of rice that I think a lot of us have is, you know, these flooded fields, and so um, it's viewed maybe as a really water-intensive crop. Um, so, you know, uh, I've heard some people saying that, uh, that we shouldn't be growing rice in California. Um, so can you help us understand, you know, if, if that's true or if it's not true? Could you uh, add a little bit of color to some of those comments we've heard? Absolutely, and, and we hear that we hear that from time to time. And the great news is once people are educated and they get the correct information, uh, those that have a negative impression more often than not are going to turn to the positive. Not only are you growing a staple food worth billions of dollars, not only are you playing an integral part for the environment, but it's also grown very water efficiently, and there have been some changes along the way, too. But first of all, in terms of water efficiency, heavy clay soils, they act like a bathtub holding the water in place. Plus, 
that five-inch water depth surprises a lot of people. Additionally, about 40% of the water used during the growing season is returned back into the river for other uses, growing other crops, for environmental use, and for urban residents as well. And there have been changes in the varieties of rice. We grow uh, sticky rice, if you will. In fact, we grow virtually all of America's sushi rice. But what has changed through conventional breeding is we grow plants now that produce less plant and more grain. So it's much more efficient than it was a few decades earlier. I I, uh, I want to go back to this, uh, the whole wildlife. I'm amazed that there's 230-plus species of waterfowl and in, in, in birds that, that uh, are directly impacted by the rice. Uh, 40% of their diet, did you say, comes from rice? That's uh, nearly 60% of the diet for the ducks and geese that migrate through, and those numbers are in the millions. And uh, we've, we, we as a family enjoy the diversity. In fact, I'll tell you one thing that I, my family does the 4th of July is that we go with, of course, permission from the growers. We go to rice fields, and we look over black tern nesting areas. And black terns are wonderful birds. They're very loud, and they're very protective of their habitat. So we don't get too close, but to see these birds swooping around in the field, in fact, they'll kind of almost be airborne, and they'll just land long enough to get a little bit of water, and they'll go up. There's American bitterns. Uh, seeing a bald eagle is such a thrill. And sandhill cranes, people may be familiar with those. They have a tremendous trill, and they look kind of prehistoric. I mean, it, it's really something to behold. And in fact, we even have things like uh, turtles and giant garter snakes that enjoy the rice fields. And the interesting thing is, it's just a complement to the farming. It's not an, it's not a, a us versus them situation. Everyone gets along well in a rice field. So, so Jim, if uh, if the rice fields weren't there and uh, we grew uh, more conventional crops there, what would uh, what would happen to the, that habitat and the and the species of uh, of, of animals that, that use that, that habitat? Well, that's an excellent question, and I think that uh, the first answer would be not a lot of uh, material would grow in those heavy clay soils. So they're perfectly suited for rice, but they don't necessarily work well with a lot of other crops. In fact, there's a community in uh, the north part of the state, Richvale, and they were named Richvale a uh, long time ago to attract Midwestern farmers to come out and they were purported to have rich soils. Well, in truth, they were heavy clay soils. They tried other crops. They didn't work. Now they're one of the best rice-growing areas in the world and have some of the highest yields in California. So uh, I don't think that a lot of the other crops would actually work in California. But if uh, rice was taken out of the equation, um, the estimates are from folks that we work with is it would cost somewhere in the range of $2 billion, that's billion with a B, to create enough habitat for the wildlife to be in the situation they are now with the rice fields. It's essentially a free service as long as we're allowed to grow rice in California. And one of the things I should say is we have tremendous partnerships. We uh, lean heavily on the expertise of folks like Audubon, the Nature Conservancy, Point Blue, and Ducks Unlimited. They're the scientific experts. They help us get the most we can out of our crop to help wildlife. Boy, that's uh, that's outstanding. Being from uh, Southern California, uh, where, where you know if we. Uh, See any standing water? It's it's gone by uh, the end of the day because it's evaporated. But uh, uh, what a beautiful sight that is to to see. As uh, I know, I've been there a, a few times. 
those rice fields, especially in the fall around harvest or right after harvest, when the when the wild uh, wildfowl and other uh, birds start coming in, it's just it's just spectacular. It's right out of a movie. Well, we have a great time capturing that. Our website calrice.org. We post thousands of photos every year and uh, even drone footage. So I encourage folks, if they want to check out Rice Country, they can just go to their computer and learn more about it. I should also say, too, on the subject of water, if you don't mind, I think one thing that's important is how much water is actually consumed by the plant. And it turns out that it takes about the same amount of water to grow a serving of rice as it does oranges or broccoli. The difference with rice is people see it. So they have questions about it. But, again, once they get that information, they're feeling a lot better as they eat their sushi roll made from California rice. <laughs> That's a fascinating point. So you said the the, the rice is grown in the, the uh, Sacramento Valley uh, north of the, the uh, Sacramento Delta, San Joaquin Delta, uh, an area heavy, heavily dependent on rainfall and snowpack. What are some things that you're seeing with this current uh, situation. We've had a good snowpack, but it's my understanding that it's melting uh, more rapidly than than uh, what was in, is, is anticipated. How's that affecting uh, rice growers, and how's that affecting the wildlife? Well, we're fortunate this year for the first time in several. Uh, we do have a pretty abundant water supply, so we have a near normal rice crop this year, and it's certainly a blessing for the wildlife. I'm out in the rice fields uh, multiple times a week, and I saw a lot of struggling over the last couple of years. Each of the last two years, we planted more than 20% fewer acres of rice. In fact, rice was one of the most impacted crops from the drought in the 400-plus crops that we grow in the state. So we've certainly had our share of challenges with the drought, and we're continuing to be as efficient as we can. But the good news for the environment, for our economy, and for the rural communities that depend on rice is that it's close to a full crop this year. I'm sure the birds are happy about that. I know I am. <laughs> and I'm sure the farmers are happy about that, too. Um, so, you know, they're, uh, but, you know uh, every farmer I've ever spoken to is, uh, is never happy with the status quo. They always feel that they can do better. Uh, what are some of the things that you think uh, that, that, that uh, growers within the Rice Commission are working on to, uh, you know, take the next steps to improve sustainable practices or optimize water and other resources? Well, I think one of the keys is you surround yourself with good people. So we uh, get help from a variety of sources, University of California, the Rice Experiment Station, which is an industry-funded facility in uh, the Sacramento Valley that helps with research. We also look to conservation groups for help. It's all about doing the best we can with the resources that we have, being responsible stewards, getting the most out of every drop of water. And we've done really well with that, but we're going to continue to look for ways to keep that going. And some of the interesting things with, for example, the conservation research is are there different times you can have the water in the fields? different levels, perhaps, that will help wildlife. I was amazed. I was in one uh, at one rice farm, and the farmer told me, you see that field there? That field has a certain depth of water for a certain bird. And you see that field over there? I have different birds in there, so I'm working with conservation groups, and I have a different depth of water in that. So, I mean, very creative. Cover crops, nesting islands, habitat ponds, gradual drawdown of, of water. I mean, it's really endless. So, but you, you, you hit the nail on the head. 
every Californian, whether a farmer, an urban consumer, someone working with environment, really needs to do the best they can with a resource. It's most likely going to be in short supply for a long time to come. Well, that's uh, that's that's uh, very encouraging, Jim. Are there uh, programs, uh, state, local, federal programs, or programs perhaps that the Rice Commission puts out to help uh, uh, farmers enhance uh, wildlife habitat uh, that you're aware of? We work with the USDA's Natural uh, Natural Resources Conservation Service. There's a program called the RCPP, which is the Regional Conservation Partnership Program, and there's millions of dollars that are being utilized to help be more efficient uh, working with the farmers and the conservation groups. We kind of have something interesting as well that we've just started just a very short time ago. We actually have a nonprofit foundation where the public can help with water bird preservation. We have a website, calricewaterbirds.org, and you can get more information there. And essentially, it's a 501c3 nonprofit, and if people want to help contribute to protecting wildlife in California, they can do so in a very easy fashion. And they can see the results, too. We'll keep presenting that information. And what was, the, what was that the web address again, Jim? It, That's exciting. It's calricewaterbirds.org. Excellent. Excellent. And, Jim, we're about running out of time here, so if people want to learn more about the Rice Commission or growing rice in general, uh, where else can they go? CalRice.org is your one-stop shop. We do have a lot of different social media, and we update it every day, so please look there. And if I may, just one note, too. One of the things we look at for our water future, we're hoping for more storage in the state, including Sites Reservoir. We think that would be a big boost to all of California. Excellent. Jim, thank you so much for uh, for your time and the information. It's been uh, delightful chatting with you. Uh, glad you're there. Glad you're being good stewards of our resources, uh, not only for the farmers but uh, for the wildlife as well. Thank you again. It's a pleasure. Great. Welcome back to the Water Zone, and this week is Ag Week, and uh, our hosts are Paul McFadden and... Uh, Claude Corcus. Sorry, too many people on this show, but it's great. we got too many smart people. And Mr. Mikey, Mikeypedia, uh, Baron right here. So anyway, we're going to turn it back over to uh, to the guys down south. And uh, guys, it's all yours. Hey, thanks a lot, Rob and uh, Mike. So this is Claude. I'm filling in for the normal host, Inky Biskiner, who is on vacation this week enjoying uh, enjoying herself. And Can you get your voice a little higher? Sound like Ingi? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ingi, is that you? <laughs> okay, so uh, so this is Claude again, uh, filling in for Ingi Biskiner, who's on vacation this week. Paul's here uh, as our regular host. Um, our next guest up is Tim Hawks. Tim, are you are you on the line? I am. Okay. Hey, Tim. Uh, welcome to the show. Um, Thanks so, for having uh, me. Good to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, uh Tim's a native of uh, the state of Utah. He holds a bachelor's in political science from uh, BYU and then a law degree from Columbia University. After a federal clerkship and stints at a, at a global law firms in Washington and uh, Tokyo, Japan, he returned home to work for Trout Unlimited, where he spent more than a decade working on water law and policy, and in particular partnering, partnering with the agricultural community in an effort to find win-win solutions that sustain farms, restore rivers and streams at the same time. He currently serves in the Utah House of Representatives and as general counsel for the Great Salt Lake Brine Shrimp Cooperative. 
That's a mouthful. Where part of his job involves working with a broad array of water users to preserve the Great Salt Lake. So uh, there's your intro, Tim. Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Yeah, so, you know, you have a, a, a background, uh, an interesting background, but one that seems like it's a little bit far away from agriculture and water. Um, you know, you started uh, as uh, in, in, in uh, some lawyering stuff. So can you help us understand your career path that kind of took you over to uh, agriculture and into the preservation of environmental, uh, uh, you know, environment and habitat, you know, and uh, and fish? Absolutely. It's a bit of an unusual career path, but maybe 10, 12 years ago, I found myself practicing in Washington, D.C. at a large law firm, and I I just didn't find that career path all that fulfilling. I worked with great people on great cases, but I just didn't kind of get what I needed out of it, and so I started casting about for what to do with the rest of my life, and I had an interesting conversation with a colleague of mine. He said, you're your problem, Tim, is that you're interested in natural resource conservation, but you're Republican, so there's nowhere for you to go. <laughs> <laughs> and he recommended that I look at what he called hook and bullet organizations, Ducks Unlimited, Trout Unlimited. And I, you know, I grew up fishing and hunting in kind of a rural uh, part of the world, and so uh, I was interested in that. And I looked on Trout Unlimited's website, and lo and behold, here was the perfect job for me uh, in Salt Lake City, working on water law and policy and collaborative things. And uh, the rest is kind of history. It took that job. It provided me the chance to come back and work on things that really matter. And it's been a, it was a great, uh, great move for me. Yeah. So, uh, so casting about looking for a new career path, is that a pun intended? <laughs> a little bit of pun intended. Yes. I, I was, the subtext is I was looking for a job that allowed me to go fishing and counted as work. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, I think you've just uh, uh, piqued the interest of about uh, 50 million people. Unfortunately, they're not listening to right now. <laughs> At least a million, though. <laughs> there you go. Uh, uh, Tim, this is uh, Paul McFadden. Uh, welcome. wanted to say hello and, and ask you the next question, if I could, please. You bet. Thanks, Paul. Um, what role do uh, non-governmental organizations, G uh, NGOs as we call them, like a trout or ducks or unlimited play in, when it comes to water and ag policy in the western United States? Because I think even though uh, your uh, background is uh, with, uh, with trout in the, in the Rocky Mountain states, I think we have to look at the, the entire western U.S. as kind of one system, interconnected system, especially when it comes to, to uh, waterfowl, but also for fish. So I'm just curious, uh, what, uh, what role do you think those NGOs play? So I think Jim Morris alluded to some of this, which is NGOs provide some expertise. Really, in my experience, NGOs like Trout are, have really driven a lot of the innovation in terms of finding, you know, what we call, and I know the term gets overused, the win-win solution, but the solution that works for farms and ranches and for fish and wildlife habitat at the same time. And Trout was one of the first organizations to really jump full on into that notion, and they really kind of approach a two-prong approach. One is to approach it from the policy standpoint. How do we enable 
these kind of transactions to happen. And the other is what, what I like to call boots on the ground or getting your boots muddy, which is actually going into rural communities, rural areas, getting to know the needs of the local irrigators, you know, what, what, what are their operational challenges, what are they trying to do, you know, now and for the future, and building those kind of relationships of trust where you can actually do these projects and, uh, and, and put water, for example, back in stream where a lot of, you know, traditional ag views that as a bit of a threat, right? If I don't use all my water, um, I, could, I could lose some of it. So persuading them to do something a little bit different in the name of fish and wildlife uh, is a bit of a lift, but what we found is that we can get into these communities and and make these projects happen. So, you're uh, currently a, a member of the Utah uh, State Legislature. What is the what is the kind of the feel within that body towards uh, policy and law and and uh, such when it comes to to water and and, and agriculture and wildlife? So I think even just in you know roughly the uh, decade plus that I've been engaged, we've we've really seen dramatic changes in terms of the way policymakers look at it. When I first started working for Trout Unlimited and started encouraging the legislature, for example, to consider some of these collaborative approaches, allowing farmers and ranchers, for example, to lease water uh, in stream for fish habitat, it was initially viewed with a lot of hostility as a threat. But we've really done a 180, and in a lot of these states. Uh, I think policymakers and other stakeholders are really very interested in collaborative approaches, uh, looking at ways to make it work. And, in other words, looking at ways to empower it rather than, than ways to sort of throw up obstacles or roadblocks uh, to any sort of change at all. So it's, it's really quite dramatic and interesting how rapidly things are changing across the West. What do you think is driving that? Well, I think it's a little bit of just uh, people getting more familiar familiarity with the system. I, I think also it's a it's a question of funding. So historically, if you're an ag producer and you wanted to switch to a higher technology, you know you could maybe go to a federal state agency and just say, "Hey, I'd, I'd like to do it," and maybe you get some help there. Increasingly, I think funders and that's federal, state, and private funders want to see kind of projects with what you might call multi-sector benefits or. Uh, you know, multiple benefits. And so if you've got, again, just the traditional sort of engineering fix on the one hand, and then you've got a second project that is an engineering fix, plus it adds uh, important environmental benefits, then a lot of funders and a lot of, you know, traditional like NRCS funding will now go to that second project because it can demonstrate multiple benefits for people, for the environment, you know, for recreational users, all of the above. And so that's that's really, I think, what people are starting to see, A, that, that, that this really works and that it actually provides better and more lasting long-term solution. Right. That's that win-win you were talking about. Yeah. And yeah. it's real. It works. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, you know, I think we a lot of the uh, a lot of what we hear about water uh, is, you know, based in California. You know, Paul and I are here in California, and uh, we hear a lot about that. You're in Utah, and I think that you in the past have worked across really uh, all the western states. You alluded to that earlier. Um, you know, where, where have you worked, and are there, real, are there some differences in the, in the approaches that you, uh, that you use in different states? Yeah, there really are some dramatic differences. Uh, Paul alluded to this earlier. Of course, fish and wildlife, they don't recognize any specific geographic boundaries, and water doesn't either. But water 
administration really remains in the purview of the states. And so we see dramatic differences state to state in terms of what tools are available and how easy or how difficult it is to use those particular tools. And so in many states, I mean, the Bear River in Utah is a good example. It starts in Utah, it flows into Wyoming, then into Idaho, well, actually back into Utah, then into Idaho, and then back into Utah before ending up in the Great Salt Lake. And so if you want to work systematically on the Bear River, you've got to work in three states with three different, completely different sets of water laws uh, and sometimes projects and funding availability and everything else. So it's complicated, but uh, but we're figuring it out. And I think a lot of states, again, are, are looking at new and different things. And nothing happens fast in water, but we are seeing important changes really across the West that empower these kind of positive cooperative, working with ag-type projects. So, Tim, I'm just curious. This is Paul again. Do you, do you see the same level of willingness within the, the governing bodies of, outside of Utah, say in, in Idaho and in other states, in working on projects like the one you just mentioned? Is there, is, there, is there a heightened awareness within those groups and there's a greater willingness among those groups to, to come to viable solutions that are truly win-win for for, uh, for all, all uh, folks involved? Well, I think it, it still runs the gamut, honestly, state to state to state, and some are more, more or less uh, hospitable to that sort of thing. But I do see in almost every state uh, the tenor of the conversation is changing. Again, some places it's changing quicker than others. Some places have long and established traditions, particularly Oregon and Washington. They really have two, two decades plus sometimes in doing these kind of collaborative um, Projects. They also have access to a lot of funding that other states may not. But slowly but surely, we're seeing, you know, here in Utah, we've passed two or three uh, bills now that empower this kind of thing. I think we're going to see more. Uh, I'm just working with other water users on finishing a state water strategy for the state of Utah that really uh, envisions a lot of really creative stuff and, and empowers a lot of this, just this type of project. Okay, so uh, we talked a little bit right now about the, the states and what their, and their differences. How about uh, at the grower level? Um, are there differences at the farmer level, and uh, what's their attitude towards working with uh, NGOs like uh, like Trout Unlimited? Again, I think it's it's pretty dramatic. If you go into a basin where there's a where there's a history of sort of working together, sort of one successful project really paves the way for more. That first one is always the most difficult because it's an unknown, and people don't really you know the players don't necessarily trust each other. But we've seen time and time again where people realize that we're in it for the long haul, that sometimes five, six, seven years after a project's implemented, we're still there making sure it still works for that producer. Um, word like that gets around. And as it gets around, it sort of empowers us to do a lot more things. And we start to get, I've seen this repeatedly across the West, uh, ag producers and agricultural groups actually coming to us and saying, what can we do? And you know that when, you do, when you've got to that point that we've sort of uh, – you know, that's a watershed moment, right, when instead of going out and having to uh, run down projects, people are actually coming to you with projects. Well, I would think that the, the typical farmer is going to be more of an outdoorsman uh, and maybe uh, likes to fish or hunt or at least uh, enjoys those aspects of, uh, of wildlife, whether he, he fishes or hunts or not, he still enjoys them. So I, I'm, I would imagine the motivation level would be, uh, perhaps greater than, say, uh, someone who is not familiar with farming and and uh, and the all the resources that go along with farming. Yeah, I think farmers are the original stewards of the land. If you didn't take care of the 
land, then you didn't have a livelihood. And so they're used to taking the long view, and they're used to looking out for these resources. I think where where farmers and ranchers get upset is if you make it a zero-sum game and you say that my sort of abstraction or, you know, my habitat for fish is going to come at the expense of your livelihood or your children's future. If you put it, if you put it in those terms, you know where they're going to go. But most of them want to do the right thing. Most of them like to fish and hunt. They like to have healthy habitat. It's good for their livestock. And so if you can show them another way or provide them with resources to help them get there, they're more than happy to do so, and they're great partners, honestly, to work with. We've found that time and time again. So what are some of the things that, uh, that you're working with agriculture on now, you know, to, uh, uh, to uh, improve both uh, you know, sustainable water use and, uh, and wildlife conservation? Well, sometimes these are just a, a simple efficiency change. Um, it gets oversimplified. You know, you can you can shift from say flood irrigation to pivot irrigation. Interestingly enough, that's not always positive for the environment. So you really got to get in there and make sure that you're doing the right thing. If you're harming water tables or late season return flows, that could be uh, problematic. In a lot of cases, we're simply trying to change points of diversion. So historically, they put those points of diversion very high. That means that there are long, dewatered sections of stream in the hottest parts of the summer, and fish need water 365 days a year. So if they don't get it one day, they die. So if we can pull that point of diversion, you know, sometimes it's a quarter mile. Sometimes in a project I'm working on right now, we're pull, pulling that point of diversion seven miles downstream. And so we restore seven miles of sort of braided river riparian habitat, and they still get the same amount of water, with a lot less ditch maintenance. So that's just an illustration of the kind of projects we look we look at, but it's really soup to nuts and and it's 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 it has the the solution has to be tailored to that individual farmer situation and the environmental demands of that particular place. Hey, so Tim, do you look at individual farmers or do you kind of look at it on the watershed basis? So how how does that work? You know, what are your objectives? So it's both. I mean, obviously we want to we want to affect landscape and watershed scale change, but that all starts with the guy across the table working, or gal across the table, working with that individual farmer and rancher. So you got to start somewhere, and we typically find initially you're just opportunistic who's willing to work with me, and then over time you're able to do more of a landscape scale, working more with irrigation groups and groups of farmers and ranchers, um, because again, now you've got a little bit of street cred and they're willing to talk to you and willing to trust you and listen to the solutions that you might be able to bring to the table. Tim, I, uh, you know, you and I have known each other for a few years now. I, I, you, I know you just recently made the move away from Trout Unlimited to the Great uh, Salt Lake Brine Shrimp Cooperative. Could you tell us a little bit about that? That sounds very interesting. And is are there issues with the Great Salt Lake that uh, maybe our listeners would be interested to to learn? Yeah, and I think there are many of the same issues that we just talked about. It turns out that for bird habitat and for brine shrimp and this whole complex, really beautiful ecosystem that's out there in the Great Salt Lake, it's an important flyway, has all these other benefits. You know, you have to find ways to make sure that we're not drying that lake up. And we've seen examples in California with the Owens Valley and the Salton Sea and with Mono Lake, these big debates over, you know, are we going to let some of these terminal lake basins dry up and what does that mean for the environment if we do? So interesting enough, with that pivot, I'm still engaged in the same conversation, whether it's with ag users or industrial users. You know, how can we balance these competing needs and make sure that this vital uh, environmental resource remains sustainable well into the future? 
for many, many years. And so it's really kind of, it's a similar question. And we, uh, you continue to add population in the state of Utah, it's going to add pressures on that. Uh, pressures on that resource, and yet it just kind of ups the ante in terms of finding solutions that really work for people and for the environment. So, uh, so Tim, what is the, uh, the Great Salt Lake Brine Shrimp Cooperative? If you could help us understand exactly what you do, that would be very helpful. Sure. Well, Brine Shrimp are uh, a fascinating critter, and we could probably do a whole program just on their whole uh, life history and things that they, they do. But as it turns out, they create these cysts, or egg, they're kind of like eggs, basically. In the winter, the whole population dies off, and they leave these eggs that will hatch out when environmental conditions are right, when the temperatures warm back up. And it turns out that the very things that help Brine Shrimp survive in these harsh environments make them you know, easy to ship and move around. And so they actually play a vital role in the aquaculture industry around the world. There are certain species of, of uh, shrimp and fish that sort of need brine shrimp to really sort of get through this critical window in their life history. And so uh, it, it's actually an export commodity, and it goes out and really helps feed people around the world. So it's, it's kind of an interesting niche industry, uh, but it's an important one. And it's, uh, the, the research is actually managed both to have sustainable yield in terms of harvesting those brine shrimp eggs and also to uh, ensure that there's enough there for all the birds that use the Great Salt Lake as for part of their life history as well. Right. So that's yet another uh, limited resource that has to be managed so we, so we don't overuse it, and, uh, and it and we can, but we can still benefit from it. Exactly. Just like water in that regard. Right. Well, I hope... Uh... I hope you still have some time to, to to do some trout fishing, even though you're involved with the all these other things, including the, the Great Salt Lake and the, the legislature and and uh, those things. I hope you're still finding some time to get out and enjoy some of the some of the the benefits of the work that you've been doing with Trout Unlimited for all these years. Well, boy, I sure hope so as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the, in the mo- a few. Uh, uh, moments we have left. Any uh, closing thoughts, uh, Tim, that you want to leave our audience with in terms of uh, the balance between uh, agriculture and, and uh, nature, uh, wildlife uh, uh, that you think uh, our, our listeners uh, need to be uh, reminded of as, as part of this process? Yeah, let me just finish with this thought. I, I love to think about the West in terms of stories, and I visited the Hoover Dam earlier this year, and if anybody's seen that, it's really this amazing uh, piece of infrastructure and a sort of a culmination of all of this human ingenuity and and sort of taming the, the Wild West and making the desert bloom as a rose. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's really this remarkable feat of human achievement if, if you look at that same 150 years of human history that culminates in the, the Hoover Dam, from an environmental standpoint, it's a, it's a really sad story, one of habitat loss and degradation and fragmentation. And one of the exciting things about working in this space is I think that here in the West, we are getting the chance to tell a new story. Uh, you know, Wallace Stegner was a famous writer of the West. He said, it's hard to be pessimistic about the West. This is the native home of hope. And then he went on to say, we think about rugged individuals, the cowboys, as sort of the legacy of the West. But in reality, it's a legacy of cooperation. And the exciting thing is that we get to write this new story and we get to harness human engineering and our innate ability to cooperate and to work together 
to sort of hammer out a new, more positive story where we balance all these competing demands for this scarce and precious resource. And it's just, it's a really uh, exciting space to, to live and to work in, and it's an exciting time. I think we've kind of turned the corner. And, and so as I look forward, uh, I'm optimistic and, and just grateful uh, to play a role in it. Well, I certainly want to read more about this new story that you're talking about. Where can other people go to, uh, to learn more? So best place for be www.tu.org, and if they drill down in that a little bit and look at the Western Water Project or Western Habitat Initiative, they'll really sort of see some great examples of these boots-on-the-ground projects I was talking about, how it works in real life across a wide, uh, a wide range of Western states. And, Tim, is that TU as in Trout Unlimited? That's it. TU yeah. as in Trout Unlimited. Okay. Okay, uh, thank you very much. We very much appreciate you having you here. Thanks, Tim. My it was pleasure. A pleasure Thanks to you have both. you uh, on the water zone, and uh, appreciate you carving out some some of the time in your busy, busy schedule. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks again to you both. Great, Rob. I think that uh, wraps up the ag uh, ag side. Let's uh, throw it back to you. We appreciate that. I was getting hungry talking about rice and fish and. <laughs> Shrimp. Trout. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm stopping at sushi on the way home. Okay. <laughs> Lucky guy. Hey, I do have to say, though, I think the attitude or the the approach of this win-win, that it's just not, oh, everything the other side is doing is bad, but it's really looking at creative um, approaches to achieving mutual what, – what maybe – at some point was considered to be mutually contradictory objectives. But, you know, that's exciting to know that people are willing to sit at the table, listen to the other side, and together work on making progress. Well, I think the more people know, the more they'll understand. And, you know, that's what we try to do here on the show is bring people just like uh, Claude and Paul and Iggy do to bring people from different walks of life and different industries, you know, from their side on the on the ag side, from ours, from the, the landscape and such. I think it gives people a whole new perspective about what's really going on. They they don't know half of these things. We're learning things every time we listen to the show, and it's really great. Yeah, we're... as are we. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, my, uh, Mike, you, I think you you mentioned an interesting thing, which is that win-win. You know, they say that all of the water that's uh, in the world today has always been in the world today. It's the same water. It just evaporates and falls as rain, runs off to the oceans and freezes in polar ice caps, but it's all the same water. Yep. Yep. And, uh, and it can be used multiple times. It is. It has been used multiple times for eternity. And uh, and it's interesting that, you know, these those types of practices, that same philosophy is being brought to uh, conservation, wildlife, habitat, restoration, and agriculture. We can do lots of things with the water, not just, you know, uh, waiting for it to fall as rain the next time around, but let's use that water for multiple purposes as it flows through the system the first time absolutely no you're, you're absolutely right but which reminds me of the book i think it was good to great by mr collins and uh talk about the genius of the and as opposed to the tyranny of the or so we're going to keep focusing on the o on the uh genius of the and doing multiple things concurrently absolutely, absolutely. next week uh pete nichols national director of waterkeeper international megan broussard from the inland empire waterkeeper and gary brown from the executive director of orange county water talking about water all right. It's all about everybody have a safe and wonderful 4th of July weekend.